picture a fairy tale's engraving, straight black trees stretching in perfect symmetry to their vanishing point, the ground covered in thick white snow. Woods are dangerous places in such stories. Things are not as they seem. Here, too, in this timber plantation, menace lingers. The blackened trees smolder. Smoke creeps around their charcoal trunks and charred leaves. The snow, stained pale grey as ash. Place your foot unwisely and it might slip through and burn. These woods are cordoned off with crime scene tape and guarded by uniformed police officers. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. My name is Emma. On the 7th of September 2009, hundreds of bushfires tore across the state of Victoria, killing 173 people and destroying 435,000 hectares of bushland, plantation and private property. The day became known as the Black Saturday fires, the worst in Australia's recorded history, a scar on our national consciousness. Of the almost 400 individual fires that burned that day, it is estimated that five of them were deliberately lit by arsonists. Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, spoke on behalf of many angry and bewildered Australians when he called these fires mass murder. Despite the egregious, twisted nature of such a crime, it is estimated that only 1% of bushfire arsonists are ever caught and convicted. In her second non-fiction book since her award-winning The Tall Man, author and journalist Chloe Hooper takes us inside the hunt for the firebug responsible for igniting two fires in the Latrobe Valley and killing 10 people. For today's podcast, we are joined by Chloe Hooper. Chloe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's been almost 10 years since Victoria was devastated by the bushfires that ravaged the Latrobe Valley and Churchill. Where were you when you first heard about the fires? I was in the country um, in northern Victoria and um, it was such a memorable day because the temperature was 46 degrees, there were very dry, desiccating winds. Um, You really had a sense of what our future in this sort of warming, on this warming planet might be like and um, especially if a north wind blows. So I wasn't in danger, although uh, if the wind had blowed a different direction, um, the place I was in may have been affected too. But I was, you know, we were very lucky. And how soon after the fires did your investigations for this book begin? Well, I think like most people, I was, um, it it was hard to comprehend how somebody could deliberately light a firestorm, which is basically, you know, what it was like on that day. It was, it was like lighting a bomb. And um, I wondered who becomes an arsonist and why. But I didn't really seriously start writing this book until about five years after the fire. The book, it switches between the point of view of police and prosecutors and also the defence lawyers. What was it like, firstly, to work with the Victorian police and the arson squad? Well, I had, I mean, I think of getting into a new story. It's like trying to find the border of a, of a country you haven't visited before. And I'd, I'd um, tried various ways to um, 
you know, find an entry point and to no avail. And finally, I um, found the name of the detective who'd arrested Brendan, who was the police informant in this sort of case throughout the legal proceedings. And he'd been actually also, it turned out, the liaison, the point of liaison for victims' families. And I uh, I didn't think the conversation would go very well, but I, I picked up the phone and, and to my surprise, he was actually very open to the idea of cooperating on a book if he was given official permission. But I did have this awkward moment of having to say to him, um, I have got to tell you, I the, my last book was about police corruption. And he just waited a beat and said, well, that's not a problem for me. Um, so actually, I mean, meeting the arson squad detectives was 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 incredible and hearing about the kind of science of how they investigate these fires was was extraordinary but I needed the other side as well so it also it took longer then to also negotiate Brendan's lawyers um, right. having permission to speak and it sort of does it flits between the two because they do have very different perspectives on Brandon himself and the fires mm. the Victorian police they we sort of get the impression that they suspect that he is quite controlling and cunning, that he's possibly even overplaying some of his mental incompetence. But then the defence lawyers, on the other hand, um, was it two years afterwards he was diagnosed with autism and they thus sort of perceive him as someone who's ostracised and misunderstood. How was it following their version of events and their opinion on Brandon? It was actually quite difficult to sort of navigate, um, you know, who whose perspective was correct because um, the police really fervently believed that, that Brendan, um, who was arrested uh, five days after Black Saturday uh, on his char- the, the charge of arson causing death, they believed that they picked him up and that he was almost playing the role of the village idiot and 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 exaggerating whatever his impairment was to disrupt their interview. Um, and they also believed that he was probably a serial firelighter. Um, so there, from their point of view, he was um, uh, a cunning character, as you say. And um, that was absolutely sort of almost the polar opposite to the um, the defence team's point of view. They believed that he they were defending a, a bewildered childlike man who who didn't understand the legal proceedings he was at the centre of. He'd been incredibly badly bullied throughout his life, and as you mentioned, probably profoundly misunderstood because it was two and a half years after his arrest that he was finally diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. So he was in his uh, early 40s and had had challenges which um, he'd been unsupported. You know, he hadn't had any of the supports that um, kids now receive when they when they have this diagnosis. It's interesting because even though many of us have the urge to sit on either side of that binary, we want him to either be the monster or the victim. You seem to approach these questions of, of blame and culpability in such a nuanced and objective way. You don't pit the perspectives against each other. It feels quite multi-layered. And I'm interested to know how on earth you even maintain that level of objectivity when you're so entangled with the case. Well, you know, I think you're right. We do. We sort of want 
we want there to be kind of one, you know, we want black and white, which actually is not dissimilar to, to Brendan's sort of point of view. He, he really often mm. spoke about bad people and good people and, you know, he had this kind of childlike idea of of the world and, um, you know, that's a kind of, that's common to us all in a way. So I don't really have trouble, um, you know, I, I guess if, if, if my family had died in this fire, I would have had a lot of trouble staying objective. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the, the consequence of the fire were just pure horror and actually people who lost their homes or families are still still suffer. Um, but you, I do think you have to kind of remove the um, perpetrator from the crime and, and be able to look at him squarely as well. And actually, I believe probably the police and the lawyers were both right. Mm-hmm. I think that Brendan was a child and he was a fiend. And, um, you know, there are reasons for both. And I think, I do think that, yeah, you give that really fair account. And part of that, I think, is due to the writing style. I remember reading it and thinking, oh, this really reminds me of Truman Capote. Because you do, you are similar to him in that you are almost entirely absent from the story. Instead of inserting yourself into the investigation as, uh, you know, Helen Garner is famous for doing, you recreate events from the perspective of those who were there. Is there a reason? Is that to do with objectivity? Is that just the way that you prefer to write? Well, in in the Tall Man, um, my last non-fiction book, I mean, it 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 was written um, with a kind of, I suppose, sort of from a first-person narrative point of view, um, because I was there. I was on the island, and I was observing the um, court proceedings, and I was sort of had a, a um, I was much closer, I suppose, to. Uh, the legal action. With this case, I didn't get in touch with Detective Bertoncello until um, all of the kind of court business was over. And so it really was a recreation. Um, And I think, you know, inserting oneself into that, um, you know, situation would have been sort of strange. And I, 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 you know, I I make an appearance at a coda in the end. but no, this was this was a this was a challenge because not being there, you're just you know you're. I was constantly going back to the police and the lawyers and saying, "Do you remember, um, you know, this particular moment? What was going on then? You know, how did you feel? Do you remember, you know, any how how the bush smelt? Do you remember, you know, what you saw?" And so I was sort of driving them nuts, actually, <laughs> just trying to get those details right. Well, I mean, people say that is, isn't trauma memory sometimes some of the most vivid kinds of memories or even like collective trauma like those fires. Yes. So did they have like surprisingly vivid recollections? Yes, it was interesting. They, 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 they would. And, and I suppose often, you, you know, I would interview somebody and there would be some moment of kind of if you'll forgive me saying this, heat and light in the interview. And then often, you know, I wouldn't kind of quite realise that until I played it back. And that would be the moment when I next spoke to them that I could, you you know, work, <laughs> that sounds terrible, work on them further to right. um, work with them further. With, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was correcting myself even as I said that, um, you know, to sort of draw out what they remembered. 
And how was that trying to, I don't know, where do you draw the line between what you know to be real and true or at least real in their memory and what you inevitably would have had to like, the gaps that you would have had to fill in in writing those scenes? Well, I suppose if there are infelicities, then it's that they're, they're in their recollections rather than my um, mm-hmm. kind of trying to embellish the story. Um, but, you know, everybody does remember things differently and see the world differently. And so, you know, even in, in, in the recreation of this, um, you know, one is aware as a writer that you're um, – kind of in that there's an act of creation in there, mm-hmm. an active act of creation that, um, you know, is, is going to be slanted. And your readers know that also. I hope so. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, you don't, I don't know, you don't want in a way for readers to be too conscious of the kind of craft going on in the background, no, I guess. No, of course. I don't think that's like <laughs> at all. It was very immersive. And for those who haven't read it, the scenes are sort of recreated with meticulous detail. And even though you aren't personally there all of the work and the research that you have obviously done like hums below the surface we get a sense that all of this is carefully researched Thank um, you. and built so this book as much as it is this real life kind of true crime mystery that we see unfolding it is also it's a heartbreaking ode to those who perished and the communities that were destroyed. In addition to the detectives and the lawyers, you also spoke to residents who survived the fires. You spent time with victims' families. There's one particular chapter that stood out to me and kind of has stuck with me ever since, was where you wrote in kind of like a vignette style, paragraph upon paragraph of people in their final moments or uh, firemen appearing on the scene and Mm. the kind of things that they saw and experienced. Um, So I guess the question is, why did you feel it was important to also capture that desperation and that pain alongside the investigation? Well, I I suppose that to write about this case and to show what the act of arson can do, you need to see the kind of horror of of living through a firestorm and um, and what what it can do. Were there any particular community members or stories that impacted you in such a way that you had to include it in the book or just people that um, have sort of stayed with you, stories that stuck with you? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that they're they're such intense stories that, um, you know, one sentence can be quite sort of searing. Um, Just the experience of the fire itself, the idea that suddenly... um, the sky turned black and then the sky turned red and and um, that it was like trying to breathe on a hairdryer. The sheer noise, the people just talking about it, it sounding like sort of jumbo jets landing, freight trains arriving, um, and then people surviving by uh, staying in a, a dam and, um, you know, having sludge or lily pads over their face so it didn't it, they didn't burn, birds dropping out of the sky um, and then sort of setting the ground afire where they'd landed. It's, um, you know, the material was, was just so intense. And the fire itself, it essentially becomes a character in its own right throughout the book. There's some incredible poetic, uh, even mythical descriptions of 
the fire. In one chapter you write, one tiny spark, one curling lick of flame that begat this monster which grew a tongue, a head, flanks and claw-like fingers and stretched for mile after mile taking whatever it wanted. How do you hope that this book, or what do you hope that this book teaches its readers and Australians, I guess, um, about the way that we perceive and interact with um, and are shaped by fire. Mm. Well, we really, we really have been shaped by fire. We, this is the burning continent, and you know, all of our our plants are are kind of, um, you know, often designed to burn. In some places, there is sort of continues to be an indigenous fire regime, which um, is a way of of tending the environmental and spiritual needs of of the land. But in places like southern Australia, often that knowledge has been lost, or the parks we have are fairly desiccated. There are different species of, of plants growing than would have been there um, pre-colonisation. We're, we're still kind of learning how to come to grips with fire. And I think also these feral fires and fires um, are, are, are occurring more and more internationally. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who have a grievance or a problem who are inclined to light them. It's important to note, though, that of the 173 people who died that day, actually 161 died in fires that were created by our uh, electricity infrastructure failing us, power lines coming down, um, you know, poorly maintained um, lines, uh, a conductor popping out and um, 5,000 degree plasma lighting up nearby vegetation. So... Um, we also, you know, the bigger picture is holding our governments to account to have a coherent energy policy and to try to do something about climate change. Right. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I remember reading the first chapter and something that I didn't realise was that a lot of the, the, like, phone lines and, like, a reception cut out, which meant a lot of the fire warnings that were getting to people were much, much too late. Mm. Is that something that we've worked on or need to work on also. Well, that, that came out very strongly in the Royal Commission into the Black Saturday bushfires that there were also um, desperately inadequate public warnings um, and um, that is something which I don't think will ever happen again. There were a lot of people, you know, throughout Victoria who didn't realise that the fire was right on their doorstep until it was too late and... Um, it's um, very unhappy to think that uh, more people m- might have survived had there been better warnings. Right. So this is actually your first nonfiction book since The Tall Man back in, was it 2008? Yes. And since then you've published um, a fictional Australian Gothic tale, The Engagement. Yes. What made you circle back to nonfiction? Huh. Um well, since the tall man, I've also had two children, and um, I found it harder to write fiction um, with little kids than nonfiction. I I, um, I know that some other writers have found that they needed to daydream, um, which is sort of kind of you know inhabiting a fictional world. Whereas I found I sort of needed to be moored by facts and. Um, I found it much easier just to sort of be describing what was in front of me. So 
Um, and, you know, I guess this, you just don't know when a story is going to capture your head and heart and, and this one um, did that for me. Right. Is there anyone in particular, any writers, Australian or otherwise, that are of particular influence to you? Oh, um, look, I have so many writers that I admire and um, who kind of influence me day to day. Uh, in this book, I um, I really enjoyed reading Stephen Pine, a fire, fire um, ecologist, and um, he has written so beautifully about the history of fire in Australia in a book called The Burning Bush. And um, it's, you know, I, I found it fascinating reading about fire science because, um, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of mythology kind of connected to fire and um, it's the way that those sort of the myth and the science interact is, you know, there's a kind of rich possibility for storytelling there. And what are you reading at the moment? Uh, I've started reading um, Kurt Sayer and I've been started reading um, Keridwen Dovey's essay on him because I also love her work. So um, there's a, a terrific series, um, Writers on Writers. Is that right? I think, uh, you know, I think that's what the Black Ink have brought out and um, I'm, I'm enjoying making my way through that. Nam Lee is writing, about to publish a book on, um, on David Maloof. So, you know, these are sort of interesting conversations that that I'm enjoying. What's next for you then? Uh, I'm I'm having fun just fooling around with some non-fiction and and um, and fiction. I'm playing the field and um, uh, I'll, I'll kind of see see which one um, you know comes to life first. The Arsonist is a book that has both the pace of a thriller and the attentive intimate style of a non-fiction writer at her very best. It is available from Good Readings online bookstores and any good bookstore. Chloe, I think that that's us. Thank you well, thank so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well Thanks done. Thanks for coming along. Cheers.